Well, hey, it's good to see you this morning. Let's stand together as we begin our service. If this is uh, your first time with us or if you're new to church in general, uh, we believe that God has given us the gift of music to worship Him. Uh, Singing reminds us of all that God has done for us, and it allows us to encourage one another through whatever season of life that we're in. Psalm 92 says that it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to His name. So church, let's join together and lift our voices to Him. Let's sing together. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious song Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. He died for me and you. grace, Lord, like a feather, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Psalm 100 tells us to come into God's presence with praise and thanksgiving, and I hope that's what you're doing this morning, that you're here. If we're honest, I know not every morning and not every Sunday morning is peaceful as you get ready to come to church, but I'm glad you've chosen to be here this morning with us, hopefully for Bible study and now for worship too. It is a good day to be in God's house, and I'm glad we're here and we can sing his praises together. My name is Kathy Rains. I work here. I'm the minister of administration at University Baptist Church, and I'm glad you're here with us this morning. If this is your first time with us, or your second or third, and we haven't met yet, I want to do that. And so I would love for you to fill out a connection card. Those are found in the pew rack in front of you. And turn that in in the offering plate when it comes by later. If you'd rather play with your phone, I'm all for that. Pull out your phone, text the word guest to the number that you see on the screen, and we can follow up with you. We just want to know a little bit about you and tell you a little bit more about us also. There are a few things I want you to know about this week, um, actually in the coming weeks. One is, this Tuesday night, our women's ministry is having an event called At the Well. We do this about once a month during the school year, 
And this week, Tuesday night, we're going to come together and talk about prayer and the power of prayer and the importance of prayer in our lives. And I want you to come and be a part of this. This is for the women. Guys, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait for the men's ministry event. But women, please come join us uh, this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. A week from tomorrow, this is Monday, May 14th, we're having an event that I'm super excited about, and I hope that you are too. We have the opportunity to host in our church right here a Clyburn in the Community recital. We're going to have a Clyburn competitor from last year come play a recital for us on this stage. Now let me tell you what's exciting about this for me is that it's open to the community, but the marketing specially targets children with special needs and their families. It's really easy for families with young kids or kids with special needs, we all know kids make noise, to bring their kids to events like this where they're expected to be quiet and to be still. Sometimes you probably feel that way in church also. But at this event, our performer knows that there will be kids, and there will be kids with special needs. There'll be extra movement, there'll be extra noise, and that's welcome. So if you know families with young children, with young children with special needs, with anyone who might want to come hear some piano, some beautiful piano playing, I hope you'll invite them to come be a part of this. It's next Monday at 5.30 p.m. The recital will last only about 30 minutes, so I think we will all love it, and I hope you'll come. I do need some volunteers to help with this. If you'd like to be a greeter and help people from the community who are not familiar with our church find their way from the parking lot here to the sanctuary, find me or email me, and I'd love to help you be on our greeter team. We also have a brief reception after this, and so if you want to help with that, I'd love your help there too. Be a part of it. Now, more immediately, today, I need some strong people to stick around after worship today. We are having our sanctuary painted this week. We're excited that we've gotten some money from an insurance company who said, you're right. Your leaky roof that's repaired now was uh, causing rain to come inside, and we have some stains on our walls, and we get to fix that this week, and we're excited. But in order to get that done, we have some pews that we need to move so the lift that comes in this week to help our painters can access all the areas. And so we need some people with willing and strong bodies to stick around after church and help us move some, move some pews today. We will feed you tacos, and we will say thank you. And then we will ask you to come back next Saturday at 1 o'clock to help us put the pews back in place. So we really want your help on all those. Um, I want to thank you in advance for sticking around and helping with that. I hope you'll come Tuesday night to our women's event. hope you'll come next Monday to our piano recital. And now I hope you'll stand and greet one another. I'm glad you're here today. Children, would you come join us up here for a moment with Mr. Kevin?
All right, go ahead and make your way back to your seats and have a seat. And Mr. Kevin Lentz is going to lead us in our children's message this morning. I have something tricky to ask you, and here's the deal. You do not have to raise up your hand if you don't want to, okay? Because I'm going to ask you some hard questions. It's about being in trouble. Are you ready? Raise up your hand, and you don't have to if you don't want to. Raise up your hand if your parents have ever sent you to your room because you're acting bad. Yeah. Okay, put them down. Raise up your hand if you were ever playing with a toy and you got into a fight with the toy and the teacher had to take the toy away and put the toy in timeout. Does that ever happen to you? You don't have to answer. It's okay. Put them down. Raise up your hand if you ever got grounded. Thank you, Ms. April, for being honest. Put your hands down. Raise up your hand if you ever got in trouble from school and had to miss recess. Yeah, no one wants to admit to that. Okay, put them down. Raise up your hand if you ever got in so much trouble that your parents threw you off the boat into the ocean. Nobody? Wow. Raise up your hand if you were in so much trouble a giant fish came and swallowed you up and kept you inside for three days. Who am I talking about that got in so much trouble? Jonah is the one who did that. The preacher is going to be talking about Jonah for the next few months. And Jonah did the wrong thing. He disobeyed God, and he got in trouble. He didn't have to go to his room and get grounded, but he did get thrown into the ocean, and a fish came and gobbled him up for three days. Okay? I want you to pay close attention for several months now. The preacher is going to talk a lot about Jonah in lots of different Sundays. I want you to listen because the story of Jonah is so cool. You know how many chapters it is in the Bible? It is only four chapters. It's super short, but you get Jonah, a boat, a big fish, a storm, you get a plant, you get a worm. The worm is my favorite part of the story. But you got to wait all the way to like August to hear about the worm part. So it is amazing things. Now, one more question before we go. Raise up your hand. This is a complicated one. Raise up your hand if you got in trouble, but your family still loved you. That should be everybody. Remember this. Put your hands down. Remember that God loved Jonah even when he disobeyed, and God loves you too. I'm going to pray real quick. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. God, we thank you so much that you love us, even when we are willful and disobedient. We thank you for your love. God, we thank you for the chance we have to come and worship you today, to give our gifts and offerings to you. We thank you that you that you love us so much. Amen.
before we begin uh, singing again, I just wanted to share a couple of things. Uh, I love the song that the choir just sang, Psalm 139. I'm just going to reference the last two verses of that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Well, I don't know about you, uh, but I don't have to search too hard to find some wicked ways uh, within me and to ask God to search for more. That only ends one way, with the glaring reality that I am desperately in need of God's grace. In just a second, we're going to sing the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. But before we do, I want to share with you some of the meaning behind that phrase. Um, so the hymn was written by Charles Wesley in 1749 on the 11th anniversary of his conversion. And if you don't know anything about Charles Wesley, um, he was a preacher, he was a missionary, and he is one of the most influential English hymn writers to date. He, in fact, he wrote over 6,500 hymns. That's insane. That figures out to be about one hymn every day for 17 years. How's your devotional life? Are you writing a hymn every single day? Uh, certainly something to aspire towards. But you know what? Uh, he didn't come up with that phrase on his own. Oh, 4,000 Tongues was actually inspired by a statement that he once heard by a fellow church leader who remarked, had I a thousand tongues, I would praise Christ Jesus with all of them. Had I a thousand tongues, I would praise Christ Jesus with all of them. And so on the anniversary of his conversion, as Charles is reflecting on his life in Christ, he, he takes that line and he tweaks it a little bit and he comes up with, oh, four thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise. I love this line because it's as if he's saying that his one tongue is not enough. His one voice is not enough. He wished he had a thousand tongues to recount all the glories and all the triumphs and all the honors of the name of Jesus Christ, the name that charms our fears, the name that bids our sorrows cease, the name that breaks the power of canceled sin, and the name that sets the prisoner free, the name that hung on a cross and shed his own blood for sinners like you and like me. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He is worthy of every voice in this room and so much more. And I encourage you to stand now and open your hearts before him and employ your voices to his praise this morning. Let's stand together and sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues. Let's sing together. Tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Yes, my gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim. To spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. We will go for you. 
our voices and sing. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. Blood can make the foulest clean, his blood avail for me. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Help us to remember that. Let's sing this together. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For it's nothing but your blood. Pardoned us for my pardon. This I see nothing but the blood of Jesus for my cleansing. This my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And
even when times get hard. He's there with us in the midst of it. Let's sing this together. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like Yeah. 
Amen to that. It's my favorite song, and one that has ministered to me in numerous ways throughout the years. Think about those lines. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And that verse so eloquently captures why we gather here, doesn't it? And it's an important question that we must never stop asking ourselves. It's a question you need to ask yourself this morning. Why are you here? Why do you come here? Like when you wake up on a Sunday morning and your feet hit the ground, what compels you to be here? You know, when I look out in the congregation and I know so many of the stories, I know that the reasons for our coming are varied, right, for a lot of different reasons. Some of you, you grew up here, right? You've spent your whole life here. Some of you, you raised your children here. You spent decades here. This is home, right? You wouldn't be anywhere else. This is where you belong on a Sunday. Some of you, you're newer, right? You're getting to know this church, these people. You like what you hear. You, you like the conversations you're having. You're expectant to see where God might lead you. Some of you are here because you have to be. Somebody's made you or you feel like it's a good idea. Some of you, you're just checking it out. You're just visiting. There are all these different reasons as to what brings us here. And the risk with that is that if we don't stop and ask ourselves, what is it that really compels us? A lot of times we come here and we have a different experience and a different reaction to what Sunday is designed to do. And so let me just go ahead and cut to the chase for all of you. There are going to be weeks that you come here and you like the sermon and weeks that you come here and you don't. There are going to be weeks that you get here and you really enjoy the conversation and the dialogue and the community. And then there are going to be weeks that you come here and you're going to feel isolated and disconnected. There are going to be weeks that you come here and you love the music. And it's going to connect with you and resonate with you. And there are going to be weeks that you're going to feel completely disengaged. And guess what? That's true for every church. And the reason that we need to stop and ask ourselves why we gather here is because it is quite possible for many of us to commit ourselves to a routine, to commit ourselves to a tradition, to, to commit ourselves to a religion or this idea that to be a Christian is to be a better person and we'll miss it. We'll miss the fact that the reason we gather is because we stand on the shoulders of saints who have gathered for thousands of years because they saw that Jesus of Nazareth came with authority. He came with compassion. He came preaching that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And he was willing to give his life on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve so that we could find peace. Which means every moment of our lives, every moment that you give in to greed or materialism, every moment that you give in to anger and you say things to your loved ones that you shouldn't, every moment that you give in to lust or temptations, every moment that you have these sins that remind you of the separation from God, God has taken all those things and nailed them to the cross and we now stand justified before the living God. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. So when you wake up and your feet hit the floor, what compels you is that your sin, oh, the bliss 
of this glorious thought that our sin, not just some of it, not just part of it, but all of it has been nailed to the cross and we now stand justified, bearing it no more. We come to praise the Lord with all of our soul. So in view of God's mercy, brothers and sisters, let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Let us pray that we will have our minds renewed, that we can always test and approve the good, pleasing, and perfect will of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we confess that too many times we just go through the motions. We come here with our our biases and our preferences and our expectations. And we miss the beautiful gift that you have justified us freely by taking all of our sin and shame and nailing it to the cross. So Father, now as we come to your holy and sacred scriptures, we come in reverent submission. Once again asking that you would transform us and change us and let our lives erupt in praise for who you are and what you've done through Jesus our Lord. It's in his precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 1. Today marks the beginning of a new series, and I'm very excited about this series, and I want to give you a little bit of insight in terms of what has led me to pick Jonah, and then also set some expectations in terms of how we're going to go through it. Uh, First of all, one of the things that we have acknowledged many times as a church is that we want to be a church that's biblically guided, right? And that means we want to consistently be in the scriptures. I've told you before that that's my preference, is that we just walk through a book of the Bible. And, And so we've done that. And I think that has been evidence to you before when we've walked through Mark, we've walked through Colossians and 1 John. But in order to truly be biblically guided, we have to look at the full teaching of the scriptures. And we need some Old Testament. And so that was a big motivation for me is we've got to be back in the Old Covenant and see the full story that God has revealed to us. And so that was one thing that led me to Jonah. Another was that I just feel like this story is very applicable to us, uh, both as individuals as well as a church. It's, It's ultimately a story where we get to see the word of the Lord coming to Jonah and then seeing how he's going to respond. And and that's true for us on an individual level. That's true for us to say, okay, what is the Lord speaking to this church and how do we need to respond to his word? So I I feel like it will be very applicable for us and encouraging in that manner as well. Now, a couple of things about expectations that I want to tell you um, that will kind of set the pace for this series. I have a couple of friends in my life that are, are great at speaking truth and speaking critique in ways that are loving and appropriate and insincere. And after a few questions and conversations I'd had with some folks, I, I recognized that I needed to reflect a little bit on how I was going about sharing and teaching. And then what I realized after kind of greater analysis was that I had kind of fallen into a rhythm of teaching one chapter a week whenever we'd go through the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Um, there, there's some value in taking that approach. But what would happen was is that I would go through my study and my prep time and I'd look at all these different details and ultimately arrive a kind of a main theme or an overview statement, and that's really what I would share. And and while I think that's appropriate, I wasn't taking you on the journey with me. And so uh, a lot of times we would miss valuable things within that teaching. And so after reflecting, I thought, you know, we need to change our pace. And so rather than just say, hey, four chapters in Jonah, that's four weeks, we're going to take our time. 
and, and we're going to go through this intentionally and methodically, bit by bit. In fact, I don't think there's a Sunday in which we take on more than five verses at once. Today will just be the first two verses, okay? So that's going to be a different pace. You heard, you heard it in the children's sermon. It's going to take us through the middle of August, and I'm excited about that already and, and what I think that will hopefully result in the time that we can spend together. Now, with that being said, here's where I want to begin this morning. A, a couple of weeks ago, my kids finish up their piano lessons, and they're walking out of their piano teacher's house, and they, they see that she owns a typewriter. Now, I wasn't there for this great discovery at the time, but it clearly was very intriguing for my children, probably because they'd never seen one before. And so all the natural questions of, what is this? What do you do with it? How does it work? Like, they just obviously filled their minds, and they were very curious about it. And it kind of served to be catalytic for ongoing conversations through the week, especially with James. He, he became very intrigued by this, this discovery, and so we would have all these questions and all these conversations that typically kind of unfolded like this. He would come up to me, and he'd have this curious look on his face, and he'd say, Dad, what else is from the 1900s? <laughs> so I set my cane down and leaned back in my rocker. <laughs> well, son, I'm from the 1900s, actually. I felt so old, man, but it's like, you know, and you're born in 2010, what else? You know, it, it feels old. And so he was really curious with all these different inventions and things like that that used to exist in, in the olden days, I guess. And he really became fixated on the typewriter. And so he asked me, he said, well, Dad, do we know anybody that has a typewriter? And I said, well, sure, I know for a fact Edie has one. Now, Edie's my mom, his, his grandmother. And he said, whoa, that's really cool. Do you think she'd ever let us borrow it. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sure she would. You just have to ask her. And, and so it was at this moment of the story that I found really to be interesting. That's why it's made its way into the illustration this morning, because here I was. I just presented to my son an opportunity to reach out to his grandmother and ask her a question. And so there are a lot of different ways in which this could have been accomplished. I thought, well, maybe he'll do what we normally do, pick up the phone and, and make a phone call. Of course, he's been known to text her from time to time, and so maybe he was just going to send a text. We're we're kind of gotten into Marco Polo lately, if any of y'all are aware of that, so it could have been a video. And so I was anticipating one of these options being chosen. So you can imagine my surprise when he looked at me with this look of excitement. He said, I know, I'm going to write her a letter. And I said, man, James, Edie would love to get a letter from you. So he scurries off to his room, and after a few minutes, he comes back, and he's written this letter. I actually asked his permission to show it to you this morning. Dear Edie, do you have a typewriter? If you have one, send me a note back. I want to learn stuff about 1900s. Sincerely, James Smith. Now, how cool is that, right? Isn't that cute? Who would not want to receive a letter like that? It was awesome. And, and these are the reminders of these personal notes that somebody sends us and how they just warm our hearts. I get this almost every week, not to be outdone by her brother. Annabelle is a pretty good note taker as well. In fact, she's doing, she does a great job of taking notes during my sermon. They look a little different, but after every week, I tend to get something kind of along these lines. Annabelle for dad pastor, you know, and then I can open it up and there's usually a picture or something inside and I just love it. Okay, so I'm telling James, I say, James, send it to her, she's going to love it. But I decide to let the process play itself out, right? I, I wanted to, to let the, the time and the anticipation take root. And so every day after he sends it, dad, has she gotten my letter? Dad, has she gotten my letter? I don't know. I don't know. We'll wait and see. When all of a sudden, a couple days later, I'm going through the mail and I see her response. So I walk into the house, and I'm like, James, you've got mail. And he comes in, and he comes in, and he sits down, and you should have seen the expression on his face. 
full of joy, full of excitement. He just couldn't believe the whole process had worked. And Edie had written him back, and so he opens it up, and of course she confirms she has said typewriter, and he's more than able to borrow it, and now it's in our possession, and we were playing with it this morning. But what, what stood out to me was the joy that he had in his face when he received that letter. And it stood out to me because I realized that's a joy that few of us really experience anymore, isn't it? Right? Because we live in a culture now that is constantly bombarding us with messages. Right? We have all these different notifications. There are phone calls, text messages, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Marco Polo, all these different messages. It's the emails. It's the, it's the red bubble epidemic that appears on our devices, Right? And, and so we're constantly being reminded that somebody's trying to talk to us. And with all these notifications, I've noticed that we cannot have to have, tend to have two different types of people in the world. And I'm curious, which one of you? How many of you would say that, that you are like militant against the notification? Like as soon as they emerge on your phone, you're getting rid of them. You're checking them right away. How many of you guys are always checking your notifications? Okay, that's me, right? Like I'm a fighter. It's like, a, it's like it's a disease and I'm getting rid of it. Like I don't want to see it on my device at all. How many of you fall in the other camp where you just give up, right? And there's so many notifications on your phone, you never check. Okay, yeah, we've seen those. Okay, so, so you can see how you're just constantly bombarded with spam and emails and all these different things. And because we're so inundated with this stuff, we often lose the sight of what it means to have a joyful uh, reception of a word that's been spoken to us. That's the hope for us to discover today to rediscover the joy of the simple fact that the word of the Lord has come. May it not fall in the midst of the white noise and all these other things, but may we receive it joyfully and openly. The word of the Lord has come. The question for us this morning is, how will you respond? All right, so Jonah chapter one. A couple of things about the book of Jonah. It's obviously a well-known book. Uh, Even outside the church, people have heard this eccentric story of Jonah being swallowed in the whale and spit back out. And because it's so eccentric, it's led to questions. Is it accurate? Is it historically true? And and obviously, because of the unique qualities of it, people have made assumptions that perhaps it's a parable, perhaps it's just an allegory. But in all my research on it, none of the scholars really land in that camp. They all say there's no reason to doubt the historical authenticity of it. Just because it's eccentric, well, there's a lot of things that God does miraculously in the scripture, so that's not enough reason in and of itself. So so we'll read it as a historical book, but what really stands out is the unique way in which it's written. Jonah's a prophet, right? But what we see in the book of Jonah is different than these other books of prophecy. Because usually when you're reading through these other books, you see the actual prophecy that the prophet is speaking to those people. This is the story of how Jonah the prophet responds to the word of the Lord. Right? And so we have kind of a narrative that takes place. And these first two verses serve as a wonderful introduction to what, is what, it, what to, is what I would consider one of the most exciting and interesting books in the Old Testament. So chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. All right, let's... Let's unpack this for a moment, okay? It begins with this amazing declaration, the word of the Lord came. I want to break that down, okay? The Hebrew term for word is debar, and we see it more than 2,500 times throughout the course of the Old Testament. It's the reminder of just like our culture, people are talking. A lot of things are being said. So the question that we often face in our own lives is how do we know when to pay attention? Like, like when do we choose to listen and what do we choose to listen to? 
Isn't it true that the, the things that gain the most credibility and the things that often garner the most of our attention is when we know who the recipient is? Right? Think about your mail. You go through your mail, and granted, most of it is junk mail, solicitations, bills, I mean, advertisements. And so what are you doing? When you sort through it, what are you looking at? The sending address. Right? Who sent this? And the moment that you recognize the name, the moment that you recognize that it's personal, oh, I'm going to listen to this one. I'm going to open this one. I'm going to see what it has to say. So it's not enough just that something has spoken. What we see in the very opening verse is that God speaks. More than 400 times in the Old Testament, we see God answered. God spoke. God said. It weaves its way through the pages of the Scripture. From the very beginning, in the beginning, God said, let there be light amazing realities within that implication, right? That our God is not one who conceals himself, but he is one who reveals himself through his word, right? This idea that, that our God just kind of set things in motion, almost like a wind-up toy now, and he's just sitting back and watching how things unfold, that is not supported through the scriptures. Our God speaks. He is never silent. That's a pretty remarkable truth that we must never stray from. But it also leads to another question. How do you hear him? Like, how do you hear his voice when you read his word or you, you feel him within your heart and your soul? You've noticed that you do this, right? I mean, when we sit down and we read a letter or we read through a text message or we, we catch an email, we often assign some sort of tone or some sort of posture to whoever has authored it, don't we? Right? We, can, we can read maybe that they're upset, maybe that they're angry, maybe that they're, they're sarcastic, and we have all these different ways in which we interpret a written word. And so I'm curious, what tone do you assign to God? Knowing that he speaks, how do you hear him? Is it a voice of disappointment? See, some of us in here, we, we constantly feel as if though we're disappointing God, and that's the only tone that we ascribe to his voice. Sometimes we, we feel that he's frustrated with us. Sometimes we, we feel like we have to walk on eggshells with all these rules, all these do's and don'ts, and the slightest mistake is going to result in his wrath and his fury and his anger. How do you hear the voice of the Lord? See, what makes this opening line so significant is it's not just that God speaks, but it's Devar Yahweh. Yahweh is the sacred name that's assigned to God. Right? This is the one that's revealed to Moses when Moses is called and summoned to go before Pharaoh. And there's a lot of mystery and intrigue around this name because it was so sacred that it was rarely, if almost never, spoken by the ancient people of Israel. So questions about how it should be pronounced, what it means, all these different things surround the mystery of this name. But what really is significant about it is to acknowledge that this name points to God's character. It points to who he is. That's what we need to pay attention to. And this begins to influence how we hear him and how we understand him when he speaks. So think of it this way. I think it's in what? 312, Exodus 312, when Moses has this encounter and God's telling him that he needs to go before Pharaoh and God says, listen, I will be with you. And then Moses follows up with a question and says, well, okay, but if they ask who you are, what name should I tell them? And it's there then, I think in 314, that he says, I am who I am, this is where we get the name Yahweh, which if you connect it with this whole discussion, essentially what God seems to be saying is that I am present with you. That's who I am. I am the God who is a covenantal God. I will be 
my, God, my people's God, and they will be my children. It's this understanding that God wants to have that intimate relationship. He is near. That's why we get the name Emmanuel, God with us. The consistent promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. That's the character of our God, a God who is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is Yahweh. And that's how we need to hear him. A voice of love, a love, a voice of compassion, a love, a voice of a covenantal relationship with his people. It's the word of the Lord. And it came. That whole phrase, the word of the Lord came, is used or found more than 73 different times through the course of the prophets. It's a common description. And so we we look at the fact that the word of the Lord has arrived, and the question becomes, okay, well, then how did it manifest itself? And that's an intriguing question to consider, right? We wonder, okay, so, so how was it heard? Now, it doesn't specify that for us here in Jonah at all. But if you look through the pages of the Old Testament, we see a lot of different ways in which God speaks to his people, right? Sometimes it is this audible voice that emerges through through the burning bush or through the mountain, right? Sometimes it's through dreams. Sometimes it's through visions. Sometimes it's through the words of the prophet. But make no mistake, it, it speaks. What's significant about the word came, the word of the Lord came, is that it has undeniably been spoken. There's no question that it has arrived. It has arrived with a certain level of certainty. God has, in fact, spoken. What matters is the response, right? Now, you may not like what he says. You may not obey what he says, but the the certainty of the passage is that the word of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord has come. So there's an incredible amount of importance just with those opening words. And we we get some more information in that first verse, right? The word of the Lord has come to who? It's come to Jonah. Jonah, son of Amittai. We don't know much about Jonah. And I think he's referenced maybe one other time in the Old Testament, uh, we don't really know anything about his dad, Amittai. We don't get a whole lot of additional information, very little known about him, which tells us that our understanding of this book is not going to come from external evidence about his life, but really about this interaction that we're about to read. Right? The main characters of this book are Jonah and Yahweh, and it's the relationship between the two, how they respond to one another. That's what really begins to inspire us and educate us and teach us as we walk through this scripture. So, so you have that introduction in verse 1 that then takes you to verse 2, where now we get to see, okay, what did he say to Jonah? Now, the, the important thing anytime we really give consideration to the word of the Lord is to make sure that we really understand it, right? Because we've all been in those situations before where we think we've heard something, but, but we misunderstood and any level of misunderstanding will have a pretty significant impact. It'll impact how we react, how we feel, what we think is going to be accomplished. And we've been in those moments. In fact, uh, thinking about this this morning, uh, Gary Larson, the guy uh, that, that writes Farside, I think captures this in a pretty effective way. We've got a little cartoon that kind of brings the importance of this to light. you got the dog in the car speaking to the other dog. And he says, ha, 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 Biff, guess what? After we go to the drugstore and the post office, I'm going to the vets to get tutored. I asked if that was okay to say in church. I went with it anyway, so be, bear with me. But we've all been there. Not there, right? But we've all, we've all been there, and we heard something and then misunderstood, totally changed how we would react and how we would feel about that. Verse 2 is incredibly significant because it is so easy 
to misunderstand. And after studying it, there are all these different clues that, that I would argue don't really come out very well in the NIV translation that we read this morning. Here's the first thing that is missed. There's actually a word that, that is in the Hebrew that arrives before you even see the word go. It's the word rise up. So really, a more literal translation in the Hebrew would be rise up and go. Now, that word rise up means to, to stand, to ready yourself. It's a word of preparation, preparational activity. So essentially, what we see in the very moment of verse 2 is that if we're truly going to receive the word of the Lord, we have to be ready. And I think that's a great reminder for us because too often, we receive the word of the Lord sitting down. I mean that metaphorically, even though it's somewhat literal too, right? Like we want to hear it. We want to listen. We want to know it. We want to be able to recite it. We want to impress people with what we know about it but we're not always ready to follow. This word begins, rise up, be ready. We have to have a posture of readiness to receive the word of the Lord. Now, I grew up playing baseball, I love baseball. And, and now seeing my kids get to the age of Little League, it's been fun to, to see them start to learn the fundamentals and to, to watch the coaching take place and to, to be a part of those things. And I, I've noticed in these recent experiences that there's a new phrase that, that even though the same principle was taught when I was younger, we didn't have this phrase. But right now, when you go to these baseball practices and these games, before every pitch, you're going to hear the coach say something like this, baseball ready. Be baseball ready. Now, what, is, what are they saying? They're saying, quit looking up in the sky, right? Don't use your glove as a hat. Like, put it back on your hand. Quit doodling in the dirt. Like, be ready. That's what they're saying. Now, why do they need that? Because you don't know where the ball's going to go. You may have to run to the left. You may have to run to the right, run back, run forward. You've got to be ready. That's how we have to be. That's the posture we have to assume to hear the word of the Lord. We have to be ready. Because we don't know if God's going to call us to go left or go right, back, or forward. And too many times we miss it because we're just sitting down. We don't even really care what it might imply. We don't really care what sort of action it may call us to. The first thing we see is we have to rise up and be ready. Now, he compliments it with the word go. Rise up and go. And I love this because how many times in the scriptures do we hear that the word of the Lord says, go? It implies travel. It implies a journey. It's a reminder that our response to the word of the Lord includes following where he's going to lead. The Lord puts us on a journey, right? We always have to prepare ourselves for some sort of destination, some sort of journey. And we see this unfold in the scriptures in a couple different ways, don't we? Right? There, there tend to be two types of journeys that we see very frequently in the scriptures. Consider the call to Abraham. Right? When he calls Abraham, what does he say? Go to the land that I will show you. This is a journey where the destination is unknown. I don't know where he's going to. Can you imagine the difficulty that Abraham must have felt with that call to think about uprooting his family, taking all that was comfortable, all that he knew to be true, and actually going on a journey without knowing the destination. And somebody invites you to go on a trip, what's your first question? Where are we going? I'll tell you if I'll go based on whether or not I know where we're going. And in this destination, the journey was unknown. How many of you in here today find yourself on a journey and you don't know where the, war, where the Lord is leading you. 
These are those moments, those seasons in life where we go, I don't, I don't know what he's calling me to do. I don't know what job I'm supposed to have. I don't know what relationship I'm supposed to be in. I don't know what he wants from my life. And we, we find this destination, this journey of uncertainty, and it's incredibly difficult. Why? Because it creates frustration, doesn't it? We want to know. We want to know where he's leading. And when we feel that frustration, we begin to have these impulses to move presumptively and say, okay, well, I think he's leading me here. And we get ahead of him, right? And, and then because we're wrong and we have these frustrations, it feels as though we're losing control. And so constantly, we try to grasp that control back from the Lord and into our own possession. And that's the risk of being surrendered to a journey with uncertain destinations. And so if that's you, let me offer just one simple word of advice. One day at a time. And I know that's cliche, but there's a reason people say it, right? Even Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough worries of its own. Worry about today. Seek you first, the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you. Here's the only certainty you have when you're on a journey like that. The only certainty you have is where you are today. Man, take it one day at a time. Don't miss what he's asking you to do in the present moment. Live it to the fullest. There is no guarantee for tomorrow. Quit obsessing about the destination. Sometimes God's going to call us to go on a journey of uncertainty. But there will be other times where he's incredibly specific, like he is here. Go to Nineveh. It's a very specific journey. And that's true for us too. Sometimes the specificity is undeniable. And what is the challenge here is that when he's specific in what he's calling us to do, it elevates the pressure of obedience, doesn't it? Because now I know what he's asking from me. So I can't just rationalize my way out of it. I can't just skirt around this issue. I'm either going to obey or I'm not. And many of you in here today, that's the journey you're on. You know exactly what he's called you to do. And the question is, will you obey? Some of you, he's saying, rise up and go and seek reconciliation with a loved one. Some of you, he's saying, rise up and go to that neighbor that's hurting and tell them about this hope. Rise up and go and change that career, change those jobs. Rise up and go and help those that are afflicted. He has spoken to you, and the question is, are you going to obey it, or aren't you? So the call to go is consistent. Now, what we see in Jonah 1-2 is that this is a specific call for Jonah to go to Nineveh. So what do we know about Nineveh? We know that Nineveh is not part of Israel. It's not part of God's kingdom. It's part of Assyria. But we learn a lot about it just in this verse itself. There are two descriptors that God attributes to Nineveh in verse 2. He says that it is a great city and that there's wickedness. So let, let's, let's understand those terms for a moment. The word that he's using for great likely does allude to some level of size, right? Probably includes some understanding of the population, that it's a, it's a larger city, but that's an incomplete understanding of the term. The, the word great there is not just about population size, but importance. This is an important city, right? And we'll see that a little bit later as we read through, and we see that this city actually had a king, which might imply that possibly it was a, a capital city in Assyria. That could be one assumption to make there, but here's the important thing in verse 2, is that God's the one that's saying it's important. Think of that. This is an important city to me. And this is Assyria. This is not God's chosen people. That simple phrase, this 
great city, this important city, reminds us that God's heart is for the nations. And it always has been and it always will be. When he called to Abraham, what did he say? That you might be a blessing to all peoples. He brings them up out of Egypt so that his name might be feared among the nations. He wants his light to be a light to the Gentiles. Time and time again, we see that God's heart is for all peoples. One of the things that made the book of Jonah so significant in Israel's history was that it was a constant reminder that God thought about people other than them. And so this is a truth that you and I have to cling to. This is part of the reason that the prayer of UBC that we constantly refer back to when we're asking God to unleash his power in our lives, our church, the community, and the world is why? So that we can see every tongue, tribe, and nation come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. God's heart is for the nations, is yours. And, and I'm not saying, do you, do you know the Great Commission and can you recite a few verses? Like, is it reflected in your life? Do you actually commune with and have relationships with people of different nations that look different than you, different skin color, different socioeconomic background? Do you reflect the diversity that is inherent in the gospel? This was a great and important city, and that has tremendous implications. Now, it wasn't just important, it was wicked. And, and no doubt, there were some evil things transpiring in Nineveh. Let's listen to a couple of the descriptions. You don't have to turn there, but we find some really vivid pictures of what was taking place in Nineveh and Nahum. I'm gonna read to you a couple of excerpts from chapter two and chapter three. Chapter two, starting in verse 11, it says, where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. 3-1, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. <clears throat> 319, nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? So what do we know about Nineveh? Well, well clearly they had a lion's den where they threw their victims, right? Clearly it was a city of, of blood and lies and plunder and hatred. It was a city that had endless cruelty, so make no mistake, it was evil. But again, that's an insufficient understanding of this word that's used here for wickedness. It, the greater meaning is not just evil things, but that it extends into danger and turmoil and trouble. Okay, and so, so what you see is that a lot of times because of this wickedness, it's led to trouble. And that was absolutely true for Nineveh. Okay, because at the time in which Jonah brings this, this prophecy in which this book is written, right, that, that what we see here is that Nineveh was part of Assyria, and they had suffered several military defeats. There was political unrest at home. There was famines going on in the land. They were surrounded by this mountainous tribe called the Uratu, and for more than 40 years, or up to 40 years, you found this constant threat of trouble and opposition. They were in a tremendous state of weakness and vulnerability. They were in trouble. Okay, so, so the extended logic of this term is that because of your evil ways, you're in trouble. And I see it. You're in danger. So the application for you and I is, is kind of twofold. Number one, there's a consequence for sin. Plain and simple. You engage in evil ways, you're going to yield evil fruit. Right now, what we fall victim to is we, we presume upon God's mercy. We just 
We bank on his forgiveness. And so because we feel like there's this forgiveness, then, then perhaps we can get away with things. And now listen, yeah, you steal, you'll be forgiven, but you'll also have a consequence for stealing. You engage in lustful, licentious behavior, yeah, you'll be forgiven, but there will be consequences. There's always a consequence for sin. And oftentimes that, that consequence leads you to greater danger and greater trouble. And that's what had happened for Nineveh. Now the second application of what we see in the way that this term is used is how we see people that engage with wickedness or how we see ourselves maybe, right? Because we like to see this evil behavior and just cast people aside, right? Well, they've given in to this wicked, evil behavior, these evil deeds, man, just don't even care about them, just, just move them aside. But what does God see? God sees that they're in trouble. Yeah, he sees the evil things, but he sees that their soul is tormented. There's something wrong. Is that how we see people? Right, how many times do we just dismiss people? It's that phrase that we've heard before, right? Hurt people hurt people. And so many times we want to respond to these evil deeds with anger and disdain and isolation. We fail to see that those people caught up in those evil deeds are suffering and they're hurting. God says that their wickedness has come before me. That means it hasn't escaped his attention. He's noticed it. So what you see here is that there's an important city that's in trouble that God has noticed. And so what is the request? Preach. Literally, in, well, at least in our translation, it says preach against it. And again, I would probably take issue with that translation a little bit. I think the word against is, is applied there because of the word wickedness, when in fact, it's just the word preach. It means to summon, to call, to inform. So one of the things I love about the simplicity about the word of the Lord in verse two is that it's something that I think uh, extends from generation to generation. Many times, the word of the Lord is very simple. Rise up, go, preach. Now, a lot of us will hear that and we'll, we'll kind of dodge it. And we'll think, well, that doesn't really apply to me because I'm not a preacher. And we assume that that means you gotta stand up on this stage or some other stage and speak uninterrupted for 30, 35, 40, okay, 45 minutes, you know. And we think, well, that's not me. That's not the word. Right, that's, that's your American concept informing the scriptures. Preach means inform. Here's, here's a better translation that I would put before you for verse two. Rise up, go to the important city of Nineveh. Inform them that their trouble has not escaped my notice. Now that sounds a little different, doesn't it? See, what that tells us is that oftentimes our call, the word of the Lord, is to rise up, go, See those that are hurting. Tell them that God sees them. Tell them that they're important to him. Inform them of his grace. Inform them of his word. This is why we need to stop and take stock and consideration to how do we truly understand what the word of the Lord is saying. Because that understanding of verse two is what sets the course for everything that we see unfold after it. Jonah's understanding of the word and his response to it. We need to understand that this is the word of Yahweh. It reveals his character. It reveals his heart for this important city and the trouble they're facing. So here's the question for us this morning. If it's easy for us to fall into the trap of misunderstanding the word of the Lord, what are some practical things that we can do in our lives to hear more clearly? Well, I've got just a couple of suggestions for you this morning, okay? 
The first is very simple. If you want to hear the word of the Lord clearly and try not to misunderstand it, then know your Bible. And I don't mean just like read it occasionally. I don't, I don't mean just consider it. I mean fall in love with the scriptures. Right? Receive the written word with joyful expectation. Love the scriptures. If you don't have a love for the word of the Lord, then how in the world are you going to understand what he's saying to you? If that's not evident in your life, then make it a habit. Make it a practice. Make it a discipline. Fall in love with the scriptures. That's number one. Number two is this. Pray and fast. All right, that's another key conviction of our church. If you're new here, one of the things that we often put in front of our members, and I would encourage you to join us in this, is that we challenge you for at least one day out of every month to set aside for fasting. And our, and our request is that you actually do that without food, if you're able. If you're not, then, then consider another alternative. Technology is a great one. Fast from something, but something that awakens your body to the impulse and the importance of wanting to be before the Lord in prayer. Fast one day a month. Pray. One of the challenges that, that we've extended to the ministers on staff that I would extend to all of you today is that this year we've been trying to challenge ourselves to pray for at least 30 minutes a day uninterrupted. And let me clarify that. That doesn't mean like when you're driving to work. It's not windshield prayers, right? It's not like, well, I listen to some music at the end of the day. Like, fight for uninterrupted time where you're intentionally praying before the Lord. 30 minutes is a goal. It doesn't have to be exactly 30 minutes, but something intentional like that. And here's what I'd actually, I'm gonna extend that invitation a little bit more specific. I would actually tell you to get on your knees if you're able. No, not everyone can, but if you are, Physically get on your knees when you pray. There's something about that posture. What it does to, to offer a, a disposition of humility and surrender to see his authority. And then just the act that once you're done praying, what do you have to do? You rise up. You're ready. Ready to move to whatever it is that he's going to prompt you to do. Ready to obey whatever it is that he's stirred within you. So know the scriptures. Fall in love with the scriptures. Pray and fast. Listen and be ready. Right, too many times we just stop listening. If you prepare yourself, go throughout the day constantly seeking to listen to what it is that he's asking you to do and be ready. If he says go left, go left. If he says go right, go right. When he gives you those promptings, those impulses, and he says help that person in need, obey it. When he says bring this into the conversation, obey it. When he says go and do a good deed for that neighbor, do it. Be ready, listen, and obey and if you move forward with that mentality, the fourth thing that I would encourage you to do is this. Expect the cost and expect the risk. So many times when the, Lord, when the word of the Lord comes, you know what? It's inconvenient and it absolutely disrupts our comfort. <laughs> we don't often get to obey it sitting down. Go to the land I will show you. Go to Nineveh. Can you, can you think about, we'll see the risk and the cost that was associated with this call. Expect it. He's gonna ask you to do something that's costly. He's going to ask you to take a risk of some form, and it oftentimes won't make sense. That's oftentimes how you know he's the one speaking to you. So expect the cost. Expect the risk. Now, when that becomes a little overwhelming and intimidating, return to this wonderful truth that we've seen today. The word of the Lord has come. He speaks. Right? He has not grown silent. 
Let me ask you, let me close with this. What's the most effective way of communication? Right, we think of all these different ways in which we can receive the word of the Lord, right? We, or, or the things in which we communicate with one another. We've got these things we've talked about before, phone calls, emails, text messages. So what is, tends to be the most effective for you, right? What do you tend to find to be the most powerful and the most meaningful? See, I think we know that it's not when our phone rings. It's not when our inbox is full. No, the most effective form of communication is when we hear a knock at the door. And we see that somebody has actually come with a personal visit. And we see them in the flesh. Right? We get to feel their embrace. We get to look them in the eye. That's always the most effective because it's shown us that they care so much for us to hear they've actually shown up in person. So let me reassure you, brothers and sisters, that in the past, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets in various ways and in many different times. But in these last days, he has chosen to speak to us through his son, the one who through all things were made. And we know this to be true because in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was with him in the beginning. And through him all things were made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Because the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. It was the glory of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he sustains all things through his powerful word. This word, this grace, this truth is Jesus Christ. And hear me, he stands at the door and knocks. And he's calling to you. Rise up, go, preach. Let me reassure you, brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord has come. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful that your word has come to us in the flesh through Jesus our Lord. And we pray that we would respond in obedience. We pray that we would respond in joy. Father, for those of us that are in here today that, that would confess that many times we misunderstand, that many times we're confused, and that leads to an incorrect response or an inappropriate reaction, whatever it is, Father, we pray that you would correct our hearts, our minds, and help us to understand and hear you clearly. And once again, may we take comfort in the beautiful truth that you dwell among us, and you are here. So speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we stand before you in joyful expectation, ready to go and to preach whatever it is that you would put in our hearts, our minds, and our souls. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So during the time of response, we're going to ask that uh, you just take some time to reflect. We're going to ask that you stay seated. After we've sung this a little bit, I'll come back up and extend a time for decisions. But as this song is sung, if you know it, then you can join in and sing. If you just need to listen to the words or if you just need to spend some time quietly reflecting and listening to the Lord, let us not miss this opportunity to understand that the word of the Lord has come. So may we respond and hear what it is that he's saying to each of us.
Let's spend some time in prayer. What king would leave his throne, set his crown aside for his own creation, bear their sins and die? Unrelenting love, never ending grace, oh God, we praise your name. And I stand in all. I stand in awe you, Christ, the way, the life, the truth. I stand in awe of you, yeah. Amen, amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. We praise you. We praise you. I'm going to invite you to, to consider any time of decision that you might want to make public. Obviously, we would like to create space on a Sunday morning that if you want to join the church, you can come forward and declare that publicly, and we can celebrate that decision with you. If you need to put your trust in Christ and, and see him as Lord and Savior, we want to celebrate such a decision with you as well. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, you can come forward, and, and myself or any of the ministers here with me can uh, be happy, would be happy to pray with you. Uh, but let's take this time to, to respond and, and make any decisions that God might be prompting us to do. So why don't we stand together? Matt will continue to lead. You can join him in song. And those that need to make a decision, feel free to come forward. Sing amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. We praise you. We praise you. Amen, amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. We praise you. We praise you. 
seated for just a brief moment. Uh, thank you again for, for being here to worship with us this, this wonderful Sunday morning. As you heard Kathy explain earlier, uh, we have several wonderful opportunities. We've got at the